Today we're going to consider verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. We looked at the first six verses of that chapter on Mother's Day, and the ladies have been waiting for equal time to be given to the men, so today is the day. On Mother's Day, I reminded us what God says about family roles and the fact that what he says is quite out of fashion in our culture. The reason that the world's view of family is radically different from what God says is because, as the Bible teaches, the world is opposed to God. We should not be surprised then that we are in the minority in the way that we pursue life in all of its relationships, in all of its networking. Romans 12.2, I reminded you at Mother's Day, says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, true religion that God our Father accepts is this, to look after widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James chapter 4 and verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Jesus said in John chapter 17, you are in the world. If you belong to him, you're in the world, but you are not of the world. And he prayed to the Father in verse 17 of that chapter, sanctify them, set them apart, my followers, set them apart by thy truth. Your word is truth. So what is this thing, the world, with which the Bible clearly has a problem? Well, here's a good definition of the world, out of which you have been called if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The world and the worldliness that it represents is fallen values expressed in culture. That's a succinct definition of what the world and worldliness is. Fallen, sinful values expressed in the way people go about their lives, expressed in culture. That includes, then, family roles. And so a hymn writer has rightly asked the question, is this vile world a friend of grace to lead me on to God? And the answer is clearly no. This world, if you simply conform to it, if you simply absorb its values, it will not lead you to God. Quite the contrary, it will lead you away from God in all aspects of your life, including your view of the roles that God has given to us in our families, our roles as men and as fathers. This approach, rejecting what God has to say so that we can go our own way, floating with what the culture teaches us, has devastating effects. Here are just a few statistics from a Christian ministry directed toward men called Man in the Mirror. They say, we have become a fatherless nation. 33% of the 72 million children in America will go to bed tonight without their biological father in the home. They say 66% of children born in America will not live with both biological parents through the age of 18. Fatherless children are five times as likely to live in poverty, to repeat a grade in school, and to have various emotional problems. And our media perpetuates 
these notions of traditional, conservative, at least somewhat biblical roles of fatherhood to be foolishness. And so they make fun of fathers. Think of what program you have on TV that shows you a father who sort of has it together. You'll have to think a while, won't you? For those of you that are older, you can remember Dad, Dagwood Bumstead. And for those of you that are a little more recent then, Archie Bunker. Okay, I'll come further. Al Bundy. All right, further, Homer Simpson. On and on it goes, the list of bumbling idiots that our culture represents as men in the home and as fathers. And as a result of following what the culture has to say, we're going to see some other things the culture teaches as well, as a result of doing that, we become convinced that this is the way it's supposed to be. That this is what our wives want. This is what our girls want. But if you look at the outline that I have for you inserted in your program, I've titled this message, what a, what a woman wants, no, not so much what a woman wants, but what a woman needs, according to God's word. And despite what the culture says, what does a woman, particularly a godly woman, need in her husband? We're going to look at that together from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. And the first thing I tell you in your outline is this, that a woman truly needs a husband who submits to her needs. And we're introduced to that notion of submission in verse 1 of chapter 3. We looked at it on Mother's Day. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands. And at that time, we dealt with the fact that submission is not only for women, but it's also, in a sense I'll describe in a bit, for men as well. Now, if you were not here for that message, I encourage you to listen to the beginning of it, at least, online, as I explain what the Bible teaches about mutual submission. But the Bible tells women, to, wives, to submit to their own husbands. That causes much controversy in our culture. But the context in the book of First Peter is this. There are five chapters in First Peter. And those five chapters are written to a persecuted minority of Christians living in a time when Christians were suffering for the cause of Christ. And it's divided into three major sections. All of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 12 is reminding those persecuted Christians of Christ's blessings to them in the past. The fact that they have eternal life from him, that no matter how they are persecuted as a minority in that particular culture, that can never be taken away from them. They will one day be united with their God, even if they leave this earth by virtue of martyrdom for his cause. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. But then in chapter 2 and verse 13, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 6, we're told how we're to live in the present, not just a reminder of our blessings in the past, but now, because of that relationship with Christ that began in the past, here is how we're to live in the present, in all of the network of relationships that we have in life. And so beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13, we're told that all should submit to every authority that's instituted among men. And then it begins with kings and all those in authority. 
And then it moves in verse 18 to employment relationships. Employer, employee, and that day masters and slaves. Verse 18, slaves, you submit. As Christian employees now, you pursue life differently than the world does. You submit to your employer, not only to those who are kind and considerate, but also to those, it tells us, who are harsh. And then at the end of chapter 2, it gives us a supreme example of submitting even to harsh interrogators, difficult taskmasters in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Then you come to chapter 3, wives in the same way. Now, in your home relationships, you submit to your own husbands. And so we're given this, how we should act in the present. And then in chapter 4 and verse 7, a look to the future. Remember that you have a blessed home with the God who made you and who has redeemed you and who will come for you. Past, present, future. Five chapters, and right in the midst of that is chapter 3, wives, and now verse 7, husbands. Husbands, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way as verse 1, wives. Wives in the same way as what? In the same way of chapter 2 and verse 18. Employees, slaves. Slaves in the same way as what? In the same way that everyone must submit, going back to chapter 2 and verse 13. This command, this teaching in chapter 3 and verse 7 is part of that total context wherein Peter is telling a persecuted minority, this is how you live in all of your web of relationships, including now in the home. Husbands in the same way, you Submit as well. Well, if you're a husband here, you say, that's a ripoff. I thought the submission thing was just for the gals. After all, it says in verse 1, wives, submit to your own husbands of chapter 3. And further, we're aware of Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But we forget that the verse right before that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 then goes on to talk about how that submission expresses itself in various relationships. Wives to husbands, they submit to the leadership and authority of their husbands in the home, to be sure. But then it goes on in verse 25 of Ephesians 5 to say, this is how men, you are to submit to your wives. And here's how you do it. Love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Submit to one another, verse 21 of Ephesians 5. How does that look from a husband to a wife? He lovingly, lovingly leads her. And how does it look in 1 Peter chapter 3? And verse 7, in the same way, husbands, verse 7, be considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate, verse 7, respecting and treating her as who she is in truth before God. Now you may recall from Mother's Day then, this word submit means, literally, the word submit means to place yourself under, someone or something. That prefix sub always means under. Submarine, under the water. Subway, under the road. Submit, under someone or something. 
The Bible teaches that women in the home submit to the loving leadership and authority of their husbands. What is it that men then submit to? They love their wives as Christ loved the church. They're considerate as, we'll see what that means, as they live with them. And they treat them, they respect them. Here's what the men place themselves under. Not the authority of their wives, but the needs of their wives. Men, God requires us to place ourselves under the needs of our wives. And how do we fulfill that responsibility? We fulfill that responsibility by being considerate, verse 7 tells us, of our wives. I have for you in the outline then. A husband must not only submit, place himself under the needs of his wife, but he must be a student of his wife. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. That phrase, be considerate, if you have a King James Version, says this. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Here's what it means. Husbands, Know your wives. And the reason the, the reason the NIV says be considerate is this. We often use the word considerate as someone who's polite. He's considerate if he opens the door when you get in the car. He's considerate if he gives you a compliment about how you look. That's all true. But here it does not mean polite. It means someone who has given consideration to how he lives with his wife. Sometimes we'll say, hey, stop and consider this. And what do we mean when we say that? Stop and think about. Get to know this proposition. Get to know this issue. In this case, get to know your wife. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Get to know your wife. And that's why I say, point two in your outline, husbands must be, a husband must be a student of his wife. And so we go to school on our wives. That means a few things. One, Husbands must be students of women in general. We get to know what women in general are like if we are going to treat them with the respect and the honor that verse 7 tells us. We're students of women in general. We identify some things that women in general, not just our wives, women, just because they're women, need and don't need. Let me first talk about some things women don't need. Here are some things, guys, as you get to know women in general, they don't need. They don't need, as a husband, a teenager in an adult body. You say, why do you say that? Well, stay with me for a few minutes. Here's why I say it. We're living at a time in history in which adolescence exists and is prolonged. Now, what do I mean by that? Did you know there was a time when nobody even knew anything about adolescence? The first recorded instance of the word teenager is in the Reader's Digest in 1941. Prior to the last century, the last 100 years, prior to that time, you were either a child or you were an adult. Now, many of us know our history, and the truth is children had to become adults much too early. That's certainly true. They were sent out to work in the factories and in the farms much too early. 
And thank God that our children can enjoy a childhood for a longer period of time. But now we've created this tweener sort of thing. Ages 13 to 19, and we call it teenager. And I'm good with that. We have a teen ministry. Larry and Julie lead that very ably for us. Thank God for it. My daughter's in it. I have a teenager now at all. But I want her to grow into a young lady and not to forever be a teenager. And men, what women do not need is guys who are forever living in adult bodies as teenagers. And we've got a culture of men who are doing that. I want to take a moment to read for you a lengthy quotation from a pastor friend who addressed this issue on his blog several months ago. Here's what he says. The all-too-normal American woman lives in a world of boys, men with a pathological immaturity that's emasculated them and shriveled them into moral and spiritual wimps. The home of the average American woman is unmanned, and I add, even if there's a man physically present. The problem for Christian women is that in many cases, their scenarios are no different than those of their unbelieving sisters. The men in their lives are also weak, and often these women also find themselves in the position of being stronger than their male counterparts, spiritually, socially, economically, intellectually, and morally. The Christian woman in this situation faces a conundrum that's not resolved by the woman empowerment agenda of the feminists. Masculine weakness is not an option that's acceptable to her, but unless she's strong, she will not survive. She also realizes that in the church of Jesus Christ, God has called her to follow male leadership. And if married, she must submit and respect male headship in the home, compounding her difficulties, the reality that many have grown up in a Christian culture that frowns on women taking advanced degrees, working outside the home, studying any fields besides the approved female occupations that tradition permits for for her. While society preaches a message of empowerment, she's confused and wonders if the message for her is be weak. So she repudiates the unbiblical tenets of radical feminism even while she wrestles with the unbiblical restraints of traditionalism. She rejects the feminist rebellion against biblical authority and she embraces the Christian woman's role of submission, wifehood, and motherhood. She's willing to respect the men in her life, only she silently cries out for a respectable man. Little by little, the average Christian woman is coming to the conclusion that the men in her life are, in the main, boys in grown-up bodies. And boys cannot be entrusted with grown-up matters. Now, a Christian woman is not alone in her analysis. Sociologists, philosophers, theologians, and pastors are all saying the same thing. We live in a day of weak men, adolescent men, who refuse to grow up. Now, if you'll stay with me for a little bit more, listen to what Diana West, who's not writing from a Christian perspective, says in a 2007 book about this issue. About a hundred years ago, Booth Tarkington wrote Seventeen, probably the first novel about adolescence. It was set in small-town America, and the plot hinges on a 17-year-old William Baxter's ability to borrow on the sly his father's dinner jacket, which the teenager wants to wear to impress the new girl in town. In other words, it's not the pierced tongue or the tattoo that wins the babe, it's the tuxedo. William dons the ceremonial guise of adulthood to stand out favorably from the other boys. That was then. These days, of course, now hear this, the father and son dress more or less alike. From the message emblazoned t-shirts to chunky athletic shoes, both equally at ease in the baggy rumple of eternal summer camp. 
In the mature male, these trappings of adolescence have become more than a matter of comfort or style. They reveal a state of mind, a reflection of a personality that hasn't fully developed and doesn't want to, or worse, doesn't know how. And she goes on, by now the ubiquity of the mindset provides cover, making it unremarkable. Indeed, it's now the norm. And goes on to quote a liberal who's identified precisely, precisely the same thing. What do women in general need? Well, here's what they don't need. They don't need a teenager in an adult body. And we have too many men who still want to play after they have said, I do. And after they brought children in the world, they still want to go and do their thing. They still want to come home, have everything straightened out the way they want it, but they still want to live as though they're a teenager and an adolescent. Now, some of you men fit into that category. The minute someone says, let's go play, you can drop everything and go. If somebody says, I've got two tickets to see the Tigers, doesn't matter, I can go. If somebody says, let's go golf, doesn't matter, I can go. Now, I'm not against the Tigers, and I'm not against golf. Ten days ago, three guys from our church said to me at our Wednesday fellowship, we've got a tee off in the morning on Thursday, we need one more guy. We've tried 15 other guys, and now we're dying to you. And my immediate response was to say, no, I'm too busy. And then I thought about it for a moment, and I checked with my secretary, who's also my wife. And I was able to go, and I went, and I had a great time. So I've golfed twice this year and enjoyed it both times. I'm not against golf. I'm not against the Tigers. But hear this, guys. We play to live. We don't live to play. And when you become a man, and when you become a husband, and when you become a father... You don't have, have responsibilities that boys did not have. And if you fit into that category, one of the things you want to do for your wife and your children on this Father's Day is to resolve, I'm going to be a responsible husband and father. I will play to live, but I will not live to play. Identify what women in general do not need, but also identify what they do need. What do they need? Well, the passage tells us, men that we submit to their needs because we get to know them, and having gotten to know them, we treat them with the respect that they deserve as equal recipients of the gracious gift of life. And so we identify what they do need. That means that we men must recognize and affirm her status, her worth, and her potential. Now, what is her status? The passage tells us her status is she's a sister in the Lord, equal with me as an image bearer before God. And it also tells me that her status is different. It says in verse 7, as the weaker partner. I recognize her status as equal spiritually before God, an equal image bearer with me. But I also recognize that she's weaker. Now the passage doesn't say specifically how she's weak. But just observation of women in general will tell you that women can be described without being sexist as weak first physically. That's just the deal. I mean, I'm just a middle-aged, pot-bellied, fat guy on the downside of life. And yet my wife and I are the same age, 
And she exercised, I've caught her exercising. And I can still take her any day of the week in arm wrestling. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, you put two people, a man and a woman, at the same station in life, and the man is physically stronger than the woman. That's why when you do golf, there's something called the ladies' tee. It's many yards closer to the hole than the men's tee, because men hit it farther. I like the ladies' tee. <laughs> She's weaker physically, and let me say, and I don't mean this sexist, weaker emotionally as well, very often. And why is that? God made our wives, women's bodies to bear children that has great effects upon our emotions. Certain times of the month, particularly after we've had a, a child, those are just recognitions of, of truth. And men, if we're going to know our wives and know women in general, then we need to see them for what the Bible says they are. They are the weaker partner, not in a demeaning way. It is simply who they are, weaker physically, sometimes weaker emotionally. And I say if we do that, we recognize and affirm her status, but also her worth. Her worth, her value is as a unique individual with God-given talents and abilities, as a helper for you to accomplish your role of leadership in your family. You recognize that you need her desperately. She was made to be your helper. And you also affirm and recognize her potential. She is in process. She's developing, as are you. You've each been called to mutually assist each other in seeing where you are and helping each other get where you need to go. You guys, we guys, have things we need to change. She has things she needs to change. We in the church are in the change business. So you don't do what I often hear guys do. They come to me for counsel and they say, oh, here's the deal with my wife. And then they go on to tell me all of her problems. And men are content to describe their wives' issues rather than to prescribe from Scripture the solutions to those issues. You see, we don't just describe this is what the, the baggage that she brought into the marriage this is not just her emotional baggage, and this is the way she does things that drive me crazy. We identify each of us where we are, and we help each other before God from Scripture get where we need to go. And by the way, men, if you're not involved in doing that in your own life on a regular basis, then how will you ever have the moral authority to help your wife from Scripture get where she needs to go? And so a husband must be a student of his wife. And why do we do all of this? Here's the last point in your outline. We do all of this because it is ultimately for Christ's sake. What's the last phrase of verse number 7 say? Do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You see, guys, there are spiritual issues at stake in how you pursue your role as a husband and as a father. Your relationship with God is affected by your human relationships. Throughout Scripture, the Bible teaches that our fellowship with our God is adversely affected when we sin, when we sin in our relationship with our wives. And so if I regard, the psalmist says, iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
And so you do this, as you do with all sin, you deal with it so that nothing hinders your prayers. Spiritual issues at stake. When I have a couple come to me for counsel, this is what I tell them. From the get, all the time. Right at the beginning, here's what I say. I say that in every relationship, there are at least three persons. And God is the most important. And so at the very beginning, as we talk about your relationship, understand that there's a third party involved in this relationship. And that third party, God, is the most important. And so men, as we pursue these roles of submitting to our wives, getting to know our wives, getting to know our wives, as I have in your outline, but I won't bore you with, it's a lifelong task. You get to know your wife in particular, not just women in general. But there are large issues at stake. Your relationship with the Lord and the reputation of Jesus Christ in a fallen world. Now we're going to conclude with me just giving you a few suggestions, men, and then we're going to observe our parent dedication. But fellows, what should you do? Let me give you some suggestions. I have a list of questions that you can ask your wife so that you can get to know better what she in particular needs from you. You email me, I'll give you those questions. And then you ask those questions of your wife. Women, you can email me and give them to your husband to ask you. (laughs) Here's the other thing you should do. You make it a point, guys. You make it a point. Don't wait on your wife. You make it a point to circle July 17 and you go to the fireproof movie. And you participate in our marriage ministries that we're providing for you beginning July the 19th. You make it a point to do that. And one final piece of instruction, ladies. You will help your husband immensely. If when he comes and asks you these questions, he says, I was convicted by pastor's message. He said I should ask these questions. I'm asking you these questions. Avoid doing this. Don't break down crying. Because immediately he'll go, I knew this was going to be a big emotional mess. It's the reason I'm afraid to come to you to begin with. And one of the things that will help you, ladies, you're more emotional. It's not bad. It just is. But one of the things that will help you with that is this, ladies. If you don't look to your husband as an idle replacement for God. One of the reasons that happens for so many women is they look to their husbands to be more than they can be and were intended to be. Thank God that he's moving ahead. Thank God that he's beginning to take leadership. But always, at all times, you're looking to your God and Jesus Christ as your Savior, not your husband. We're going to observe our parent dedication now. And let me tell you what parent dedication is, and then just a moment we're going to invite some families to come forward and participate in this sacred ceremony. But we call it parent dedication as opposed to baby dedication because it is indeed the dedication of the parents to the God-given task of rearing their children as God describes in Scripture. So it's not so much related to the particular child as it is related to the parents saying, before God, we resolve to do these things. Now, what do they resolve to do? Each of the seven families, and I believe all seven are here, that you will be introduced to in just a bit, each of those seven families has been given a list of resolutions by me that they have read over and that they agree to follow in their home. Let me tell you what those four resolutions are. 
to ensure that our child learns the panorama of the Bible, particularly gaining knowledge designed to lead him to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's first. Secondly, to teach our child in both word and deed to love God supremely. Thirdly, to teach our child in both word and deed the priority of God's people and his church above all human relationships and institutions. And then fourthly, to oversee the moral development of our child such that he may be prepared to one day, as the Bible says, leave his father and mother and carry on the work begun in him to the next generation. Each of these families has agreed to those four resolutions. We're going to introduce them to you, and then we're going to have a time of dedicatory prayer for them. Loving Father, we stand before you on this special day full of gratitude for the marvelous grace that you've extended to each one here. Lord, we thank you that you've saved us, not because of works we have done, but because of your great mercy. And Lord, we thank you for the influences that you used to bring us to Christ. For some, it was godly parents. For others, a godly spouse. Still others, friends and acquaintances. Lord, we see now that you've guided our steps to bring us to yourself, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for our salvation, but we thank you for your many other gifts as well. And among these, the wonderful privilege of raising our children for you. Thank you for entrusting them to us. Lord, we acknowledge our need of your grace to raise these children in a way that's pleasing to you and will lead them to salvation. Lord, there are so many obstacles that would hinder us from achieving this all-important goal. A society that's increasingly hostile to all that's right and good, not to mention our own frailty and sin. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your strength as we set out to fulfill the vows that are made this day. So, Lord, I ask you to bless Manny and Nikki, Brandon and Janice, Zach and Lena, Ryan and Jen, Cliff and Carrie, Rob and Erica, Wayne and Michelle, as they seek to obey you and raise these precious children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We, your people, thank you for these dear families, and we thank you that they're a part of our family of families. And as the family of God, help us all to, as your word says, encourage each other to love and good deeds all the more as we see the day approaching. Grant us collectively a resolve to see that no child in our church family wanders from the truth. And that each family obeys you and keeps their vow before you. Lord, we love and praise you for your gracious work in our lives. We go forward now confident not in ourselves but in the God who has called us, for you are faithful, and you also will do it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.